0: When we started, the fact that a coffee bar existed somewhere was a reason to write about it. And in 2009, 2010, um, you know, there might be one really good coffee bar in East L.A., where now all these kinds of areas have five coffee bars, 10 coffee bars, 20 coffee bars.
1: You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel.
0: Today on the show, Matt is talking to Jordan Michaelman, one of the founding editors of Sprudge and a co-author of The New Rules of Coffee, also one of our favorite contributors here at Taste.
1: Yeah, it was great to catch up with Jordan. He uh, he is a taste contributor and one of my favorite writers. And we talk about some of his work on taste, including a great story about vegan ice cream and a story he's working on about Russian grocery stores and some of his favorite products there. But we also have to talk about coffee. He's the editor-in-chief of Sprudge, and it's one of the most influential coffee websites and brands in the world. And we talked a lot about how coffee is changing and and really the excitement that surrounds coffee right this day.
0: Here's Matt talking to Jordan. Jordan Michaelman, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be back and I'm glad that the podcast is... Back, I'm like such a fan, and I'm really glad that it's happening again. And I'm thrilled that you're gonna let me talk to you
1: about. Absolutely, that. we did the podcast with your partner uh, when we were promoting the new rules of coffee, yeah. which you did with Ten Speed, which I love that book.
0: Yeah, and that was like a big party, right? We were Hunter at culture. a big coffee party yeah. t- downtown, and then now here we are up in the. Penguin Random House uh, Yeah High Rise In in, in uh, Hell's Kitchen Midtown
1: Up in the lab um, yeah. I want to ask you first Like you uh, Come to New York You're, you're based in Portland, Oregon Correct. Come to New York A few times a year And I wanted to get uh, Where do you, Where have you been? You have great sense Of what Like where You want to go You have always Have great lists Where Where have you been In this trip? This is my first time here In two years wow.
0: Since before the pandemic uh, The last time that I was here Was in January of 2020 Right before things got You know fully weird And uh so mm-hmm. I really love the city. My f- mom and dad are both New Yorkers. And I grew yeah. up in a very sort of New York expat family out in the Pacific Northwest. The joke was that our house growing up was the last stop on the L train, <laughs> just like 3,000 miles uh, west. Yeah. Uh, so when I come out here, there's just a lot of – it gives me a lot of feelings and it's got a little bit of like a um, salmon returning to the spawning grounds <laughs> thing or whatever. It's just like –
1: where I'm from, You're also having salmon out, yeah. You're actually consuming salmon That's right I got smelly locks in my bag I went to Zabar's too <laughs> Nice um,
0: Yeah um, Yeah so you know this time here I uh, have been running around and doing some work stuff and some kind of meeting stuff which is great and mm-hmm. obviously there's a lot of um, kind of media world that happens out here and so when I get time here it's important to so, like spend time with people and go and do mm-hmm. all that stuff um, which is great and always fun um, and then uh, I've had a chance to go to some fun kind of like Mostly classic stuff this time. Uh, my business partner and I have been going every night to Julius, yeah. the like incredible gay bar on West, West Village East in the West Village. You yeah. always, I feel, go there because you you have a connection with Julius, right? Yeah my my business partner is sort of a archivist and collector of like 20th century LGBTQ history right. and, and books and small print and stuff. And so uh, over the years, when he and I have done all the traveling, done all over the world, we're sort of in inevitably going to places that like are in that line of interest in his mm-hmm. world and I'm always happy to get dragged along because a lot of times you get to go to these like amazing rooms and be in these incredible bars and stuff and mm-hmm. so yeah um, I I got to kind of do I guess like my version of that today which is like I went and had uh, a Sturgeon Scrambled Eggs at Enobiali uh, at Barney Greengrass earlier yeah. today and I like walked around Central Park which is really dreamy and went to Zay bars, which is amazing and um, yeah uh, you know some of the other kinds of stuff that we're trying to kind of do is like see coffee, of course, because yeah. uh, that's my day job is writing about coffee and publishing a coffee website. And in particular, trying to see some classic coffee stuff. So like I went, speaking of like the West Village, I went and got into Puerto Rico. Oh, uh, of course. You went there. From, yeah. It was nice. The it I've been before a couple couple times, Sweet. but i had been maybe a few trips since I'd gone. Okay. And that was really interesting. And then also, I guess sort of more Recent history or 20th, 21st century coffee history, but like going to Abrasso, going to like the original Ninth Street Espresso, which my business partner used to work at. Oh, he did? He worked there? Yeah. Oh, no way. What year? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In like from like 2005 to 2008. Oh, nice. The original. Yeah, the original one. And he helped open some of the other ones. I think the 10th Street one opened when he was there and Chelsea Market. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So spending some time in some kinds of stuff like that for a bigger project that we've been working on in Stops and Starts for Sprudge for a few years and is finally feeling like, is back to being something that we can properly wrap our arms around now. Knock on what I won't actually knock on the table because I don't want to. Yeah, we don't want to get the I, microphone,
1: but let's talk about <laughs> Sprudge because I want to uh, contextualize it a bit. Sprudge is a website. It is yes. a, a publication that has written books. Uh, you've got or written one and you're working on one. We'll, get, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But really, for me, it's a, a real authority um, in the coffee world, uh, but with a real sense of style and voice. Mm-hmm. There are other authorities. Barista Magazine is one. Uh, but I think what Sprudge is done is is created an online community for coffee professionals and fans of coffee. So that's the kind of backstory. But what is your mission with Sprudge right now?
0: Well, you know, as the project has gone on and continued to grow, uh, today Sprudge is the most popular coffee publication in the world by readership. And Mm -hmm. for us, there's a real line that gets walked in that of, how you serve as many people as possible truthfully and faithfully and in the kind of reading public's best interest. And so there's lots of different things for how we sort of approach that and making things that are interesting to people who care a lot about coffee, but accessible to people who maybe just found us on Google or had a friend share a guide that we wrote while they were traveling or things like that. People find our stuff through lots of different ways and um, growing the big tent approach to it, making a publication that day over day feels accessible and inclusive so that we can do right by all of the f- different kinds of touch points and exposure to coffee that we know are coming through the, mm-hmm. the digital door of the website every day.
1: What's exciting you in the world of coffee right now? I feel like coffee, um, we did a coffee shoot together. You were a co-editor on that two years ago. Yeah, uh, And we did, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes, but I feel- uh, two years is like twenty five years uh, mm. in real in real time. So I feel like what right now are, is is most exciting you. When we started, the fact that a coffee bar existed somewhere was a reason to write about it.
0: And in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, um, you know there might be one really good coffee bar in. East LA there might be one really good coffee bar in uh, you know the, the chunk of Brooklyn that you're talking about or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, all these kinds of areas have five coffee bars, 10 coffee bars, 20 coffee bars, and there's a lot of looks like a duck, talks <laughs> like a duck, yeah. but brother, it ain't a duck, you know, mm-hmm. like in terms of places being very kind of quality focused on quote unquote specialty or third wave or notable or extraordinary, and that is in some ways- kind of a gut check for us because it means thinking through more critically about, well, if the existence of a place is no longer a reason for it to be a story, what is? And when you follow that pathway, inevitably what you get to is this idea of saying, well, maybe it's mature enough that it's reached a point where you can think about it in terms of criticism and curation. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we've shied away from historically. We've never done hot map, heat list, Mm -hmm. top 10 stuff with coffee. But um, I think that we're getting close to it being time for that sort of a thing to feel okay.
1: Would you do full coffee reviews in a style of the New York Times restaurant review with stars? And would you actually... Um, go multiple times, have multiple people uh, visit the way that the Times does it? I I feel like that might be what you're referring to. Yeah,
0: I think that's a really fun, long-term thing for how it would look. I think in the shorter term, uh, we've been working – Really, sort of conceptually, for several years, and then now actually into the work of it uh, of building out. That's something that's we've been calling, and it may change before it actually comes out. But this idea mm-hmm. of like the the twenty two cafes shaping America in twenty twenty two, and then the idea of there also being kind of a yearly recurring thing where we're doing like what the Beard Foundation does with American classic restaurants, where we're doing that with American classic coffee companies, coffee shops, coffee mm-hmm. bars, mm-hmm. places that have. Become part of the wider, you know, intangible cultural mm-hmm. uh, uh, fabric of co- enjoying coffee mm-hmm. as a delicacy. What's a brand
1: that comes to mind right away when you're thinking about the mm-hmm. heritage brand?
0: Well, you know, I mentioned going to Puerto Rico earlier, yeah. and yeah. we sort of talked about that because. My business partner remembers when he was working in, in coffee, third, you know, early kind of embryonic third wave coffee in mm-hmm. New York 2005, 2006. Places like that were almost like the enemy in a way, or it was very first wave, second wave, it was like the old mm-hmm. style or whatever. But now you have this place that's been stolen the virtues of coffee as a delicacy for like 100 years, right? Mm-hmm. And has this sort of intangible cultural coffee heritage in this very important historic neighborhood. And that to me, I actually think it is sort of interesting to think about writing an essay about why that would be you know part of this canon of like a classic American yeah. coffee establishment one of the other places we've talked about a lot is like the the intelligentsia on Silver Lake in Los Angeles as being yeah. this like incredibly important cultural um, hub through which this wider boom on as you well know ongoing ongoing boom of Los Angeles being, probably the best coffee city in the world or in the top five of coffee cities in the world, for sure. And you can kind of flight map that back to this moment at this one place. And so getting to think about that in the context of saying, like, this is a culturally, historically significant coffee bar. I
1: love that you bring that location up. We uh, had an event out in L.A. and we had Jeff Watts from Intelligentsia mm. and and a bunch of other folks on that panel. We had a panel conversation talking about the importance of Los Angeles and particularly the Intelligentsia at uh, you know, at Sunset Junction, yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, kind of s- inspiring the LA coffee scene, so I'll link to that. Um, I want one more coffee question, sure. and I think it's important for our listeners to realize we're coming from a point of view that coffee to us is undervalued, mm-hmm. and that uh, we really feel stronger. I feel stronger. You can correct me, but I believe you do too. Is that we, we should be paying more for coffee, mm-hmm. put in our bodies multiple times. Uh, a day, and we sometimes um, quibble at, like, a $3 cup of coffee when, in fact, we should be paying double that uh, and, you know, giving money back to the farmers, et cetera, et cetera. I have a lot to say about that. That's one myth or idea that I want to present. What is another myth about coffee that you think our, our wide listenership uh, for the Taste Podcast should should know?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think that there's probably some stuff that we talked about in the first book that, When we're going to have a crack at writing another book, we're going to think about it a little differently. And one of the things we talk about in the first book is, like, I mean, there's basically a chapter where we say don't make espresso at home. Mm -hmm. Like, I have had very earnest conversations with people uh, at all different touch points in my life about, like, just go to the coffee bar. They're going to have better gear. Espresso is a volume business. It always tastes better. All of the variables will be better dialed in at the espresso bar. Just go to the espresso bar. Save your money. Well, maybe some of the tech and the interest in the home thing is caught up to the wider impulse to want to do these kinds of things at home. And it's something that I think that um, there's been some new products and innovation that have come onto the market since our first book came out. And I don't think that is going to be the path that we take with the second book we do. Mm -hmm. I actually think that you're going to see us really engage and embrace with it's sort of so you've decided to make espresso at home. Cool, let I like that. Talk, let us, we'll, we'll hold hands
1: together and yeah. we'll take like a clear-eyed view of how this. Can be done if you so choose. I like that you coming together um, and a mutual with a mutual understanding with your reader for the second book, as opposed to saying like these are all the things you need to know about coffee. Here yeah, they are. Talk, let's talk a little bit more about your second book. Sure. because When's it going to be out? And yeah. what's what are the details? Great.
0: So, um, so we're doing it with uh, with Union Square, um, which is the new reformatted of um, its Sterling, right, as what the company used to be called, um, and it's through the wider group that's Barnes and Noble, mm-hmm. and so there is this connectivity to. Barnes and Noble with it, which we're actually really excited about. I mean, we both remember getting dropped off at the Barnes and Noble at the Tacoma Mall when we were teenagers, and like going and killing hours there. You know, Um, so it's a very I don't mean it ironically. Like, we really do. We love that stuff. And so, that connectivity mm-hmm. to it, we're really excited about. But it will also be available at, in all different kinds of places, in any cookbook stores, or Amazon, and all the rest of it. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, the first book that we did um, with 10 Speed Press, we loved everything about the process of it. And it was done as part of a, a series, this New Rules series. Mm-hmm. There's a the New Rules of Wine, which John Bonet wrote, there's a the New Rules of Cheese, which Anne Saxelby wrote. Rest in peace. I know. Rest in peace. Poorly uh, of of blessed memory and and um, and uh, I think there's one other one that they did mm-hmm. right. And there's another new rules. There's like I'm, anyways. Um, so it was part of this series, and that gave us a template to work from, which for a first book was really great. Um, and we ended up writing a book that had a lot of kinds of feelings about coffee history and expressions of coffee culture, where it came from, where it might go and all these kinds of things, but we never really told you how to make coffee in it. Like We never really were like, this is what you do. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Or like, this is what you could do if you'd like. So it's really sort of more theoretical and this second book is going to be more like practice. Like a cookbook, really. Like it's theory into practice. Yeah, and so this is, it's structured like a cookbook. It's like a coffee cookbook. The idea is that if you have been given a bag of nice coffee or purchased one from your grocery store or coffee bar, here's all the things you can do with it. And it turns out, all the things you can do with it is, you know, a lot of things. Um, And that includes brewing coffee with it, which we're going to go into all different kinds of methods in detail and talk to some experts and get some different voices and perspectives and recipes and stuff. There's also all these things that you can do with it, you know, in the fridge for making cold brew and making shrubs and syrups and um, sort of stocking your bar, making spice rubs and um, Mm -hmm. even some baked goods. Coffee as an
1: ingredient is actually a pantry item. I love that. That's exactly right. And I feel the coffee flavor profiles sometimes you assume it's one thing and that it's a it's like coffee ice cream yeah. is what you think about but co- clearly coffee is used in like like Red eye mayo, yeah, for exactly. Example. Like we're, David Chang, great recipe from his book,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and we're gonna show you like a like an awesome espresso brownies, yeah, and like uh, like kind of tell a little bit of pocket history, like of the coffee cake, like as a, as a cultural thing, the yeah. coffee cake, where the coffee cake comes from, and sort of its place in American Diner Pantheon, alongside a couple of our
1: coffee. coffee cakes. Is that a Jewish thing? Because I feel like my grandmother, Jewish grandmother. In Skokie, Illinois, always had it around. But that could be just my blind spot. Is it? Is it a wider thing? My understanding uh, at this point, and we're not
0: into the research sure. part on it yet, is that it is more like a... Pan-Central European thing. Okay. Um, and that the coffee cake, as we know it in America, has its roots in a German baking tradition um, and yeah. that is, has some attachment to different, like, German
1: cakes and strudels and things like hey, that. Hey, my grandmother was born in Munich, Germany. There yes. You go. Maybe so that's there's it. some
0: attachment there, but uh, um, it's certainly something that's become, you know, adapted and accepted as this, like, diner culture thing. Yeah. And that has a lot of overlap with American Jewish culture. And I'm um, getting to explore some of that kind of stuff, you know. For like a page, or like two pages. Yeah. It's going to be really, really fun. Um, and then the last section of it is coffee at the home bar. And that's going to be, you know, some interrogating, like, if you would like to make a really great espresso martini at home, we going to, yeah. we're going to we're gonna teach you how to do it. But also things like kind of arguing for coffee as an interesting thing to do with, like, flavored spirits and how to make your own coffee vodka and some stuff like that. Really exciting book. I can't wait to read it. It's yeah. going to be out in a couple of years, I would imagine. It will be out in fall of 2023. Probably about 30% of the bar stuff will be zero-proof. There's going to be a big ah. focus on zero-proof stuff. It?
1: Um, I want to segue away from coffee and just talk about your journalism because while running Sprudge, um, you have a really active and robust journalism career. And I've been able to work with you and had the pleasure of working with you. Uh, many stories at Taste. I actually want to ask you about your punch story, which won a James Beard Award uh, about, about water. Yeah. I, I feel like that was such an amazing... Um, Expression of you as a as a journalist. I think that you bring a lot of passion. You're a connoisseur. You're a collector, and you bring a lot of passion to the page. It wasn't just um, writing. It felt like it was part of you in that piece. So, thanks. I
0: appreciate that. Sure. It's a little surreal being here in New York. One of the things I. I've had a chance to think about it a little bit more is when all that stuff happened, it was the worst of the worst of the pandemic. Like that that digital James Beard thing in 2020 and whenever it was, April. So, there was no party, there was no thing, and for somebody like me who doesn't live here and is kind of coming at this stuff as a little bit of an outsider, I um, wish that there had been because I would have got to go and meet all these people and go and be part of this oh, thing yeah. or whatever. Uh, and I sort of it, it's bittersweet because I mourn that a little bit, but obviously also like having that happen. I mean, you know, they, we could have it could have happened on the moon, and I still would have been um, happy about it. So, but it's been fun to be back here again since that happened because it does sort mm-hmm. of. Uh, change what some of the opportunities that Let's you Let's talk make about in town. the story
1: itself too. Yeah. Uh what were you doing there? What were you saying about bottled water and mineral water and and kind of our our maybe misperception or misread of mineral water?
0: I think that when I came to the people at Punch, I was unknowingly solving a problem for them, which is a lot of times the Hmm. best thing you can hope for as a freelancer. So you come in with an outside perspective and you solve a problem or you answer a conversation that that editorial team had been happening unbeknownst to you. Which
1: I was part of at the time. Yeah,
0: Yeah. and I think that you all had had a lot of conversations about... does anybody have anything more to say about the LaCroix thing? Does anybody have anything more to say about what the sparkling water, what this kind of is? And I was able to come in and say, well, yeah, there's this sort of whole culinary world that's, that's presented by mineral water that is kind of weirdly uninterrogated. And so let's talk about what that means. And there's some parts of the world where it's synonymous as like a health Beverage, mm-hmm. and then here in America, mineral water and bottled water has a sort of different narrative track of being wrapped up in wealth and privilege and mm-hmm. sort of high society or whatever. You know, the fridge of Evian, or I talk about like the Fraser Crane drinking <laughs> the mineral water on yeah. Fraser in the '90s and that kind of stuff. And, um, anyways, the truth of it is sort of in between all those different kinds of things. Um, I, in researching the story, I got a chance to meet people who make their whole careers doing nothing but consulting on mineral water, educating on mineral water. There's mineral water sommelier courses you can go to and I got to sort of link arms with a reader and go and investigate some of that kind of stuff a little bit which was really fun I learned a lot about it along the way too and um, I just also really love mineral I'm like I really love so
1: I'll link to that uh, great story let's talk about some of your taste writing because you've written about a range of topics that I feel uh, only you could cover and give justice one of them is vegan ice cream yeah you came to us and said I'm out in uh, I'm out in Portland I'm seeing something Matt and Anna so what were you seeing and what did you write
0: well there was kind of this moment and I guess it would have been in the start of summer 2021 Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden I could go to like eight dedicated vegan treat shops within 10 miles of my house yeah and not only that Every other dessert shop, including some that have a national, you know, footprint like salt and straw, were in sort of a ice cream Cold War arms race for who was going to do the most interesting vegan flavors. You couldn't just have one. You to have like five. Exactly. there was really such an good. abundance. Yeah. It was this like thing. and it happened and it felt like it kind of, you know, obviously there's been um, non-dairy uh, ice cream treats and things like that that have been around for a long time. It's not new per se but it catching the wind of the zeitgeist had this moment Mm -hmm. that felt kind of new and urgent and um, sometimes some of that just comes from like I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I feel like I'm endlessly trying to think about this stuff. And every once in a while you'll be walking around somewhere or driving around in your car or something. You have this thing and you're like, hmm. that is a story. The fact that there are 10 of these fucking things that yeah. I can go to is
1: like interesting. And it's just hiding there in plain sight. I felt that piece was really uh, nailed that actually the, these flavors um, and the style, the style of ice cream uh, transcends uh, yeah. any kind of restriction. There, it's actually yeah. a flavor profile and a style of ice cream that should be celebrated on its own.
0: Yeah. And I think also with the ice cream specifically, um, you know, I am not a great fan of personally from a from a culinary perspective of uh, some of the mock meats and substitute meats. Mm -hmm. I respect what it means. And I think the possibilities of it are interesting. But as a Mm -hmm. as a Diner, as somebody who's eating the things, I have, it's been a mixed bag for me personally. Mm-hmm. But the vegan ice creams are really good. Yeah. <laughs> and, what and when you're talking about ice cream, all you're really talking about is, you know, the texture and the base. But using whipped, you know, whipping up a, a non dairy base and then adding the fruit flavors and the sugar and stuff, it's really kind of poised to be not just this. A replacement thing or this kind of uh, vegan zeitgeisty thing but also mm-hmm. something that like if you like things that taste good it very loudly argues for itself. I agree. And that it. intersection I think is what's
1: like actually interesting. And about. it's uh, just on the palate the way that vegan ice cream hangs in it, it doesn't cloy and cling the way that dairy does and I feel you get that cleaner finish yeah. um, to use a wine term. But I want to pivot to uh, the story that we're working on we don't have a run date yet but it's about uh, your Experience with with um, Eastern European grocery stores. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in in Portland. Uh, so what is what is the what do these grocery stores tell us about ourselves?
0: Well, there are all over the country, and um, certainly a great many of them here in New York, and especially out in Brooklyn, um, at, at like Brighton Beach mm-hmm. and uh, Sheepshead Bay, and particularly in that part of Brooklyn, um, a interconnected network of. Mm -hmm. Russo-Euro-Central-Eastern-European kind of pan-continental- Grocery stores that are very focused on imported products coming from Russia and Romania and Bulgaria and Hungary and uh, all, you know, Armenia and uh, Georgia and all across that world. Um, And then also selling products that cater to that market that happen to be made in the United States. Like I've learned, like the sour cream, the Smetana sour cream, which is Mm -hmm. something that I'm like obsessed with. Oh
1: my gosh, we've talked about it a lot. I love that. I really, really like it. Oh my God. All the
0: great Smetana in America actually gets made in the same production facility in Brooklyn and they make it in these different styles. It's like a Lithuanian one, mm-hmm. an Israeli one, a Russian one, an Amish one. And it's all made in the same facility to like slightly different recipes. I've spent a lot of time, and I think a lot of people have, trying to really sensitively and thoughtfully engage with, um, well, uh, this is a bigger talk, topic. Maybe <laughs> we don't have all that much time to get to it, but um, this idea of like... America has a lot of problems but there's a lot of great stuff about living in America and one of the great things is that there's food from all over the world here and you go and have all this amazing food and like touch in on these cultural expressions of that food and like be like have your life bettered by them and like enjoy them and participate in them even which is like a special thing Uh, and it's not something that uh, I take lightly it's something that's like very much like m- improved my life and made my life like more interesting, and I appreciate it.
1: That's a nice tease to what we will be writing about on Taste. <laughs> I feel we could go into a bigger conversation here. But
0: I haven't spent the same time at the grocery stores that express the culture that happened to be from my own family's yeah. diasporic mm-hmm. like narrative, which comes from Russia. My grand- grandfather emigrated from Russia uh, before World War I in the mm-hmm. early uh, 20th century and settled in New York. And my family lived in New York until the 70s. They moved to the Pacific Northwest. And uh, um, anyways, these kind of grocery stores, um, they offer a taste of home for people from those parts of the world to come and find the specific products they want, find the pantry items that they want to have mm-hmm. cooked with. And where I really kind of have got the 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 major you know I started going to these places looking for water like I started going for the mineral water because mm-hmm. to go back to that story you know most uh, like most american grocery stores will have like a couple of bottled waters and most of it's just like filtered tap water or whatever but if you go to the Russian grocery store mm-hmm. they'll have 20 import mm-hmm. site suspe- site specific spring specific distinct mineral waters from all over Central and Eastern Europe and that's really, really fun but you have to kind of go to the specific place to get it and eventually I started going and being like oh yeah, well I'm going to get the
1: bread and I'm going to get the butter and mm-hmm. I'm going to get the other stuff. So you start picking up more stuff. items in the waters. Yeah, yeah. Love that. Um, you wrote a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle. I wanted to close with your journalism with this one because it just came out and um, I don't want to summarize it but it was in general the, the natural wine movement has taken a leap in a cool direction. Hmm. Explain the story. I, I thought it was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. um, Yeah. I got a chance to work on uh, a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle talking about a bar that uh, had this sort of whole interesting pandemic narrative of being digital pop up and then wine delivery. And then has finally settled into a physical space that's in the Mission District and it's called Bar Part Time. And Mm -hmm. um, it's run by people who kind of are walking this twin path between uh, Bay Area natural wine culture, working at natural wine establishments, and then nightlife, DJs, dance clubs. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have fused those things together into a place that um, essentially functions like a discotheque, like a millennial discotheque or whatever, millennial and and under – the average age when I was hanging out at this place was probably around 25. Um, and, really? But oh. so every,
1: it's different than Four Horsemen. Different than and Four what, Horsemen. And what do you No, no, no. Is no. Doing this is not
0: sit-down Michelin. Right. Very, very different. Yeah. Um, uh, and everything they sell is natural wine. It's a bottle shop. All they sell is natural wine. And so it functions in this way that I think feels familiar with the nightclub, nightlife stuff. And there's some delicious tension to what it means for mm. things like that to exist again after the pandemic, what it means to be in a room like that again after the pandemic, or towards the end of Whatever, wherever the fuck we are, mid pandemic,
1: I don't know what the right way to talk about it is. We but, say post pandemic here with a big knock on wood. Okay. I, I feel
0: that's good. I won't knock on the table, yeah. but um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, but to have it have fused with the natural wine thing, which um, for a very long time has sort of just been. You know, largely thought of as like an intellectual kind of pursuit or pretty mm-hmm. esoteric and obscure to have nightlife and youth culture fused with natural wine in this really explicit way at this one very specific place. Um, well I came in as an outsider and solved the problem because the editors there had been kicking mm-hmm. around how to talk about this place and talk about what it means because they knew it was a hit they knew it was really popular and I was able to kind of come in and say um, I think there's some stuff that's cool about this I think there's some stuff that's weird about this mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, will you let me go and write about it but
1: do it you know experientially so how do you enjoy natural wine if you're like listening to like a milo track or cut copy or or whatever a jungle dj um how do you express a wine like the the, the profile of a wine if, if it's like in a club like i feel like bottle service is there to serve a purpose it's usually yeah. just to get drunk and go dance or enjoy yourself at a club so how do you merge Because I feel like natural wine needs to be a little quieter than a club. Yeah,
0: well... I think what they would say and mm-hmm. what I've sort of seen them talk about on social media and stuff is this idea that sometimes when you come to the bar, it's 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, it's a little quieter, we've got tastings or there's portfolio mm. tastings and there's a chance to engage with it a little bit more intellectually, but if you hear at 11 o'clock at night, it's you know your glass of chilled mandus from the minervoise all the way mm-hmm. up to the top of their like, logoed glass and you just sort of party and go-go and it's like your dance juice, right? And I think that um, in practice a lot more people come and are exposed to the second of those two things mm-hmm. um, it's kind of desultory and, and but mm-hmm. in a way that mass access, mass adoption of any trend becomes like that. Like, there is this Sartrean path from cutting edge to Mm avant-garde to, you know, mass acceptance to mundanity. And I think that the existence of, like, the go-go natural wine club, and there will be more because Mm -hmm. this place is so popular and so kind of essential to that culture that more are coming, Mm -hmm. um, probably represents it's a zenith of a moment and that term implies gravity and i think that we're sort of seeing that 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 uh that move towards from mass acceptance to
1: something like it's cool that sf has a uh, something fresh on the nightlife scene because it doesn't at least from my outside review, SF isn't uh, a nightlife city the way that LA and New York are.
0: One so. of the most interesting things about it is that it's actually in the city. It's not in Oakland. And two years ago, yeah. three years ago, five years ago, it for sure would yeah, have in been. Yeah, it's the mission,
1: you said, right? Yeah,
0: but the the commercial real estate, resident, you know, the, the real estate has really gotten hit. That city's really had a lot of a people with that stuff because it was such a people from out of town city. It really had reached this moment in 2018, 2019, where like people came there for work from all over these different kinds of places. And I think over the last couple of years, a lot of those people got called home or went back or they moved to um, Florida for the crypto or (laughs) L.A. for a consulting gig or whatever. Austin, baby. Austin for the taxes. Yeah, exactly. So San Francisco is still there, though. It still has this thing. It's just like the culture of the city feels a little – the access has changed a little bit. And um, I think that bar part-time is sort of a roundabout way of getting to talk about that a little bit,
1: too. We ask all guests on the Taste Podcast, if there was a dream cookbook project that you could work on – Without a, a budget, meaning you don't have to worry about money, without a deadline, which means you don't have to worry about time, yeah. what would that book project be? I thought about
0: this and thought about this and thought about this today, walking through Central Park, walking around the city, <laughs> trying to figure out how to answer this question. And I think there's a sort of a couple of different roundabout ways of doing it. You know, I would love to someday get to read a really great cookbook that was about um, Amsterdam, Indonesian, and Surinamese cuisine. I don't think I'm the right person to write it. And I would love to buy that cookbook and cook through it and like get to experience
1: it. Dutch colonialism?
0: Yeah, that whole story. But what that's like with the food now in Amsterdam, Mm -hmm. because it's such an incredible um, food city and place to go and eat and go and experience it. And it's kind of – it's. Perhaps undertold, at least like globally undertold. Um, I also think that uh, people have done versions of this before, but being able to do like a really interesting thing about aquaculture and who the farmers are that actually do oysters and seafood out in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm from, would be really fun to get to work on. But the truth of the matter is, for me, um, you know, the stuff that I am hoping you're going to get to see more from me. And it's really the answer to like, what would you dream to get to do is to do reported fiction and reported fiction that takes place in part within the food world and within the journalism world. Um, Mm -hmm. Because this is stuff that I have, you know, um, been working in and being around and thinking through and taking notes on, but also kind of filing away um, moments from it for how to figure out how to. Communicate stuff from it in the lens of fiction, and um, so my real dream is that um, someday I'll get to do some stuff like that that has some interest to people who are oh, familiar man. with um, things like the Taste Podcast, but happen, um, you know, in a way that uh, is through the lens of like fiction, reported fiction.
1: I hope to have you back to talk about your fiction, Jordan Michaelman. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much.
0: The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heazel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.